You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Three weeks from today, we're going to begin our next big series together. Um, It'll begin the week after Labor Day. It'll take us all the way through Thanksgiving, so it'll be a lengthy series, and it's going to be on the issue of mind discipleship, discipling our minds. You know, our spiritual growth, to a great degree, uh, hinges upon what happens between our ears, the thought patterns, the things we dwell on, what we tell our brains to think, the thought patterns that we resist and the things we fill our minds with and choose to think upon and reflect upon and meditate upon. Oftentimes, whether or not we're growing, how we're growing, how fast we're growing, how deep we're growing, it it, it really hinges upon what happens right here. Um, And uh, that's why the scriptures talk about taking every thought captive. And so what we're going to do throughout the fall is we're just going to drill down on this issue of discipling our minds. And uh, we're going to anchor down in the book of Colossians, um, so many of, every one of those messages is going to pull from a very pivotal, important passage in the book of Colossians. And so you might even already, in preparation over the next three weeks, uh, take some time and spend it in the book of Colossians. However you do that, uh, if you read it once, twice, three times, however, however you choose to do it. But just start to begin, begin to become familiar with the book of Colossians. And uh, we're going to dig into that beginning in three weekends. Uh, but before we get there... What we're going to do tonight as well as next weekend is over the last nine or ten months, I've had like a a couple messages that have just kind of been marinating in me, that have been developing, and now they're ready to be preached. And they are standalone sermons. They're not tied to any particular series. You know, every so often, uh, little sermons just are birthed in my heart that are not crafted around a series. It's just a word that I feel led to share. And so as we're getting ready for Colossians, our our series on discipling our minds, um, I felt like this weekend as well as next weekend would be a great time to go ahead and share these words that have been kind of germinating for a long time. So that's what we're going to do tonight. And in just a moment, we're going to look at Psalm 1. The title of the sermon tonight is Good Religion. Now, A handful of you, when you look at this slide and you see the title, just a handful of you will know the reference uh, that I'm basing this off of. Um, There's an 80s punk rock band uh, based in Los Angeles that has uh, developed kind of a, over the years, kind of a cult following around the nation called Bad Religion. And so just to kind of amuse myself, I'm just borrowing, uh, kind of playing off of some of their imagery and and the name of their band. I'm going to call this sermon Good Religion. But fear not, this sermon doesn't have anything to do with punk rock, all right? So um, let's pray. I want to pause and pray just before we get into this word. And then we're going to go right into Psalm 1. Heavenly Father, um, I just thank you, Lord, for speaking to me personally the issues that I'm going to share today. And as best we know how, as an act of worship, we want to humble ourselves before you 
and hear from your Holy Spirit. Somehow, some way, we believe and trust that you're at work in this place and you're going to be at work in this sermon. And so we invite you to speak, each of us individually right now. Speak to me, Lord. Speak to us as a church. Speak into our community. Lord, sweep aside everything that could get in the way, every obstacle, every distraction, every um, competing idea. I pray that we would just hold it loosely tonight and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to guide us into your truth. Let it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 1, we'll read all six verses of Psalm 1. It's a very short psalm. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, this is the first psalm of 150 psalms in our Bible. It's written centuries, maybe as many as a thousand years before Jesus was born. And this psalm describes the blessedness of those who are observant religious Jews who have separated themselves unto God by giving heed to the law of Yahweh. And the psalmist wants us to know that those who do this are blessed. Happy, the word is used in this translation. And this blessedness of these observant Jews is that they will be marked by two things according to this psalm. Number one, stability. And number two, human flourishing. And he gives us this image of a tree that has deep roots planted by a stream of water so, so the roots are able to draw from this constant supply of nutrients. It's got stability and therefore it blossoms with fruit and, and, and its leaves never wither. In other words, those who uh, embrace these practices of absorbing and meditating on the law, they will be stable, they will be firm, they will not be shaken, and their lives will flourish with godly character. The blessedness of these observant Jews in Psalm 1 is then contrasted with the doom and the fate of the wicked. And by the wicked, the psalmist is referring to Gentiles and non-observant Jews. And they are going to be marked, he says, by the opposite of this blessedness, which is identified as stability and human flourishing. They are going to be marked instead by instability and barrenness. They will have a lack of rootedness. They will have no grounding, no roots. Therefore, they will have no stability 
and they'll be blown about by the winds of culture and change. And he, does, he gives us a different metaphor for the uh, wicked. He says they're like chaff. You know what chaff is? It's that flaky stuff that comes along with the grain, you know, when you're sifting weed. It has to be separated from the grain. I'm not a farmer, but I have, uh, I've been to a few third world countries, and I have seen the threshing of wheat old school. And when you see it with your own eyes, you're like, man, I've just been transported back like 3,000 years. And what they do, it, it usually it'll take a couple people. What they tend to do is they'll take a blanket, and they like to do this on a windy day. And they'll put everything in the middle of the blanket, one person on either end, and then repeatedly over and over again, they'll toss it all up into the air. And what happens is the chaff, the flaky stuff, gets caught in the wind and carried away. But the, the grain, because it has weight, because it has substance, it returns. It's the sifting of wheat. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Remember that? Because remember, Simon Peter had some flaky stuff that had to be separated out of him. Well, this psalm is a song in praise of Jewish religion. For the psalmist, the practice of Jewish religion, which includes the practices of rituals and feasts and fasts, culture, calendar, scripture, and prayers, these healthy religious practices from the psalmist's perspective provides a rootedness, a groundedness, and a potential for human flourishing to the Jewish people. Now, I'm using this word religion tonight, and I'm fully aware, believe me, that the word religion has become a dirty word amongst Christians of all people, particularly amongst pietists, revivalists, Pentecostals, charismatics, and nearly all variety of evangelicals. If you've been in the evangelical world for very long, you've heard the word religion throughout your life used in a very negative way. How many of you have ever heard somebody make a statement like this? They'll say, uh, Jesus didn't come to start a religion. How many of you have heard that statement? All right. I won't ask you how many of you have made that statement, but I've heard statements like that throughout my life. Jesus did not come to start a religion. And to that assertion, I want to say three things. Numero uno, this is true. Jesus did not come to start a religion. He already had one. Jesus was an observant Jew. Please don't entertain this silly juvenile idea that some people have that Jesus was not a religious man. Jesus was a profoundly religious man. Throughout his life, every Sabbath, he attended the synagogue. He revered a sacred text. He memorized the scriptures. He prayed the Psalms. He prayed the Jewish prayers. He observed the sacred Jewish calendar of feasts and festivals throughout the year. Jesus was a deeply religious man. He didn't come to start a religion. He already had one. He was religious in every sense of the word. I mean, do you think that Jesus came so that people wouldn't pray, that they wouldn't worship, that they wouldn't revere a sacred text, that they wouldn't gather in sacred gatherings regularly like this one? Of course not. Number two, 
If you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you can thank the Christian religion for making that possible. I've heard probably the, the statement along these lines that I've heard more than any other is I've heard people say, I don't need religion. I need Jesus. I've got Jesus. I don't need religion. And I just want to ask them, what, what Jesus are you talking about? And they'll say, you know, Jesus. No, 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 no. Tell me about this Jesus who causes you to not need religion. And they'll say, you know, the one who was born in Bethlehem and preached the Sermon on the Mount and died on the cross and rose from the dead. I say, where'd you get all of that? Well, I got it from the Bible. Where'd you get that? The Bible didn't just float down out of heaven into your backyard. It had to be created and collected and canonized by the church, all of which is religious activity. You see? Number three, if you're interested in passing on the Christian faith to your children and grandchildren, you need to recognize the indispensable tool of religion. Religion is a mechanism by which it's possible to continue to pass on the Christian faith to future generations. If you're, if you're someone who believes, I want to see the message of Jesus continue on. I want to see more and more people, even within my family line. I want to see my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids learning about Jesus, loving like Jesus, serving and sacrificing like Jesus. I want to see Jesus' movement continue to grow and expand in the earth. Well, you're going to need an apparatus to make that happen. That's called religion. That's what that is. Let me give you a simple definition of religion that, that might be helpful to you. Here's all religion is. Religion is a set of beliefs about God with a corresponding practice of worship. That's what it is. A set of beliefs about God with a corresponding practice of worship. How many of you have a set of beliefs about God? Raise your hands. Okay, unless maybe I have some work to do. And how many of you also have a corresponding practice of worship? You're religious. Get over it. Now, religion is never an end in itself. And that's where it goes bad. That's when religion becomes unhealthy. That's when it becomes even toxic and poisonous. But religion is never an end to itself. It is a means to an end. It's a means to our own transformation with the Spirit's help. And it's also a means by which our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids will come to know this great faith. The formal ways that we attempt to pass on our faith becomes what we know as religion. Now, the problem is millions and millions of people have been poisoned by bad religion. We all know that, and it's nothing new. It's not like this new phenomenon that's been happening over the last 30, 40, 50 years. Ever since the beginning of religion, which is to say ever since the beginning of humanity, there's been such a thing as bad, poisonous religion. But think of it like this. The proper response to food poisoning is not to go without food, because that'll kill you too. Poisoned food will kill you, so will starvation. The proper response to food poisoning is to eat good, healthy food. In the same way, the proper response to toxic religion is not to abandon religious practice altogether, 
but to adopt healthy, life-giving religious practices. Amen. Now, in Psalm 1, the, the picture that he gives us is this tree that has deep roots and it's flourishing. I want to take his image and adapt it just a bit without changing the point at all. And I want, I want us to see healthy, good religious practices as a tree that we can lash ourselves to in the midst of a hurricane. It's very interesting. The word religion itself comes from the Latin root word that means to bind together. And we are living right now in the midst of a hurricane, a typhoon, a tsunami of secularism. In some ways, it started 400 years ago with the Enlightenment. But, but as with a lot of these kinds of storms, like hurricanes, which I'm very familiar with, these storms often begin very small, but they develop and they grow and expand and become more powerful over time. And that's exactly what we've seen with the tsunami of secularism. We've seen it rake across Western Europe. If you go to Western Europe today, you'll see these absolutely beautiful, astounding, ornate cathedrals, and they're all empty today. Western Europe's become thoroughly secularized. And we're seeing this same tsunami growing and expanding right here in the United States. Now, it's not quite as pronounced as it is at the moment in Western Europe, but it's just as intense. And I'm not whining about it, I'm just saying it's a fact. In fact, think about this. If we were getting in our time machine and zip about a thousand years into the future, let's just assume that the United States, like so many nations, has come and gone. I'm not saying it will, but let's just hypothesize. Let's say that a thousand, a thousand years from now, there's no more United States. And, and those people a thousand years from now, they're going to look back at the legacy of the United States. What do you think the, the lasting contribution will be that America has made to the world? I've thought about this. And what I've, the conclusion I've come to is that America's lasting contribution to the world will be that America pioneered the idea of secular governance. That's the truly original move that Thomas Jefferson and others made. And a lot of times people get bent out of shape. Well, you know, America was founded to be a Christian nation. No, that was England. England formally declared itself to be a Christian nation. We are England. We have the Church of England. We are a Christian nation. But then America came along and said, no, we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to see if it's possible to have a nation that is governed completely separate from religion. Now, the French, with their revolution in 1789, they took that idea further and faster. But it got started here in America. That's America's lasting contribution to the world. And I think as we continue on as a nation, we're going to see secularism continue to become more and more dominant over time. Even within my own lifetime, I've observed it. From the time I was a little boy in the early 80s to now, I've seen an, an increasing secularization of our, of our culture. And you're going to see secularism continue to become more and more dominant. Now, the church is not going to disappear. The church will survive. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall, shall not prevail against it. So the church isn't going anywhere, but that doesn't mean the church will always be dominant. You know, if we're fascinated with the early church, remember that they were a tiny, distinct subculture. 
They were not a dominant force. They were a persecuted minority. And so this is the trajectory that we're on. We're in the midst of a growing, building tsunami of secularism. One of the great Indian novelists, a guy named Amitav Ghosh, he wrote a novel called The Hungry Tide. And it's set in the mangrove swamps in, in Bengal. And he tells the story, it's, a, it's actually based on a true event. He tells the story of a fisherman who's out fishing in the swamps, in the Suderbans of Bengal, in, in the mangrove swamps. And he's fishing, and all of a sudden, this typhoon begins to bear down on him. And in order to survive, he lashes himself to a tree. And as this typhoon intensifies and becomes more and more dangerous, he's, he's lashed to this tree and he's bruised and he's bloodied by the storm. But in the end, he's able to survive and live on because he's lashed himself to this tree that prevents the tsunami from sweeping him out to sea and drowning him. And with engaging and giving ourselves to healthy practices, religious practices, what we're doing is we're lashing ourselves to the deep rootedness of the historic tree of Christianity in order to survive the tsunami of secularism. That's why I'm not interested in religion as an in and of itself. I'm interested in the practices, the healthy practices of our great faith as a way of, for myself and my children and my grandchildren surviving this tsunami of secularism. That's why I want my children to know the Lord's Prayer. That's why I want my children in this room every Sunday in this sacred gathering of worship. And I don't give them an option. They don't have an option to go to school. I don't give them an option for worship, communal worship. I want my children to learn practices of scripture and prayer. I want them to have this rudeness. Why? Because dad's interested in one day his grandkids and great-grandkids being Christian long after I'm gone. And I know that in order to do that, they're going to they're gonna have to find some way to survive in a tsunami of secularism. So for that to happen, I've got to pass down to them something with enough stability that they won't become chaff blowing in the winds of culture and change. Is this making sense to you? These practices of prayer, worship, scripture, creed, calendar, community, these are all religious practices. To claim that Christianity is not a religion is naive at best and arrogant at worst. When we boast, I'm into Jesus, but not in religion, I'm not into religion. Underneath that is this arrogance that assumes that my privatized spiritual experience is the standard by which all religion is condemned. I know because I said it for years. And when I used to say, I'm not into religion, I'm not religious, just give me Jesus, underneath that was this assumption that those Catholics, those Orthodox, for sure those Episcopalians, probably those Presbyterians and Lutherans, in fact, probably anybody who's not exactly like me, all they got is dumb old religion, but I've got the real deal. 
And I just want to warn you against the arrogance, the naivete of that statement and how destructive that can be for you. Christianity is a received faith. We don't get to make it up. Imagine we go down the street to the grocery store on the corner of Buena Vista and Victory. And we find some random dude. And we find out he doesn't know anything about Christianity, doesn't know anything about the Jewish faith. And let's call him Ralph. And we go to Ralph, and I give him a Bible, and I say, here, here Ralph, take this. This is called a Bible. I'm going to pay you well, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this Bible and study it eight hours a day, six days a week, for an entire year. And if I come back in a year, what do you think the chances are that Ralph, on his own, by himself, will come up with the doctrine of the Trinity? I'll tell you, zero. Zero. It took the whole church with its best minds, even utilizing some of the tools of Greek philosophy, to arrive at what we now understand to be the discovery of the doctrine of the Trinity expressed in the Nicene Creed. That, that was a dis profound discovery made possible by the practices of Christian religion. What I'm trying to explain to you is that Christianity is a received faith. We don't get to make it up. And we get to benefit from the wisdom of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us for the last 2,000 years. What I fear with the I'm spiritual but not religious concept is that it locks us into this solitary confinement of our own private experience where it's just me with Jesus. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need the wisdom of those who have gone before me. I don't need the, the church. I don't need anyone else. I'll just figure it out with Jesus. That's like lashing yourself to a dandelion in the midst of a tsunami. It ain't going to work. You're going to get swept out to sea and your faith's going to drown. Somebody's faith is going to drown because it has no stability. Christianity is a received religious tradition with deep rootedness that I receive gratefully and embrace and give myself to. It, this thing didn't start with Ryan Post. This thing's been going on since the beginning of the history of God's revelation to God's people. And I get to benefit along the way. And hopefully I get to preserve and pass it on for future generations. But I don't get to make it up. I believe in God the Father, creator almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. That's what I believe. But understand, I didn't invent any of that. I didn't make it up. I didn't walk out into the woods and get inspired and come up with that. That's a creed that was written and formulated at least 18 centuries before I was born. But that's the very center. That's the grain 
That's, that's the core of what makes sense of all my life and why I'm not despairing in this dark world where all of these horrific things happen. That's why I can still have faith and still have hope and still have love. It's all right there. But I didn't create any of it. I don't get to make Christianity up. It's been handed to me. It's been faithfully preserved, even at the cost of millions of lives. It's been faithfully preserved and passed on to me. And my job is to simply receive it deeply into my life. Let the Holy Spirit transform me through these practices and then faithfully preserve it and pass it on to others. But that will necessarily eventually entail things that are by definition religious. Like church services, what we're doing right now. Like sacred texts, creeds, gatherings, worship, prayers, calendar. You say calendar, what do you mean by calendar? Well, I mean like at least don't you agree with me that there's something different about December 25th than every other day? Don't we agree that there's something about Easter Sunday that sets it apart? It's not just one of many Sundays in the spring. The reason why December 25th is special to me is has nothing to do with consumerism. It's because that's the day that the worldwide church gathers to commemorate the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ, our King. And to commemorate that day is the day we all gathered. Obviously, he wasn't born on December 25th, but the fact that we gather and have gathered for centuries on December 25th, that's a religious move. Amen. So I'm going to close with this. This is the punk rock part of the sermon. I lied to you. I've always had a little bit of rebellion in me. My parents would say I've, I, I'm very stubborn and strong-willed. And when, I'm, when I feel it's necessary, I'm, I'm, I'm very willing to go against the grain. So in keeping with a healthy dose of rebellion, I unapologetically define myself as a religious person. Self-identifying as a religious person might be the last possible act of rebellion in the 21st century secular West, especially here in Los Angeles. Like, what are you going to do in Los Angeles that people are going to call rebellious? What could you possibly do in this city that would freak people out? Get a tattoo, that's conventional. Everybody does that. I'll tell you what'll freak some people out. Go around saying, I'm not spiritual, I'm religious. People are gonna go, what? In the secular West, the religious person might be the last rebel standing. So let me say it deliberately with a hint of defiance. I am not just spiritual, I'm religious. Of course I'm spiritual. Everybody's spiritual. Everybody's, like, don't flatter yourself saying I'm spiritual and think you're saying something profound. Everybody's spiritual. It's like saying I'm human. I breathe air. We all do. I'm not just spiritual. I'm religious. In other words, I have chosen to give myself to the rigors and the disciplines of a deeply rooted religious tradition. And I have lashed myself to that. Why? Because I refuse to leave my spiritual formation to the chaff-like, surface-level fads of American pop spirituality. Because that's doomed to fail. 
if we're going to survive this tsunami of secularism, if our kids and our grandkids and great-grandkids are going to survive it, we need to lash ourselves to something with deep roots. And that's the historic Christian faith. Amen? So we're going to do something religious, really religious tonight. We're going to share communion together. Why don't you stand with me? If you don't have uh, elements, would you raise your hand all across this room? All right, looks like everybody has communion elements. This has been going on regularly for 2,000 years when Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room and shared the last Passover meal that he would have and he completely reorients that meal as a sign of the new covenant. He anchors he anchors this meal to the first Passover, the Exodus, when God delivered and saved his people out of the slavery and bondage of Egypt and sent them towards the freedom of the promised land. And that's exactly what Christ's sacrificial death, and, and not just his death, but his entire life, death, resurrection, that's what he makes possible for us, is a similar kind of exodus out of the slavery and bondage of self-centeredness and, and sin and ugliness and pride of all kinds, greed. And he's releasing us into the freedom of knowing our God deeply and being reconciled in relationship with God. Living under the reign of Christ, not under the Pharaoh of sin. It's a 2,000 year old practice and we're remembering our identity. This is who we are. This is who we've always been in every tribe, nation, tongue around the world for the last 2,000 years. As we share communion, we're proclaiming Jesus is Lord, the one who died, rose again, ascended, and is coming back. And one day we're gonna, comp we're gonna consummate this meal together once and for all, the great family of God from the beginning of human history until the very end all sharing one table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, united under the reign of Christ. So with that in mind, Heavenly Father, thank you for the goodness that you've shown us. Thank you for the examples of those that have gone before us, for those that have worked in concert with your Holy Spirit in every generation. God, the church has certainly never been perfect Sometimes it's been downright ugly. But you've never given up. You've never quit. The movement of your revelation has sustained your people for entire millennia. And I pray that we would be faithful to the call of Christ on our lives and our generation. And we recognize that to do that, we've got to lash ourselves to the way of life that you lived on this earth, regular practices of worship and prayer, memorizing, reflecting upon scripture, joining together in community with others. May these not be empty rituals, but may they be life-giving practices that your spirit utilizes in our own transformation as individuals and as a church. May we be formed in the way of Calvary in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. 
To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.